It's good to see you this morning. I'd like to uh, invite you to think with me this morning uh, about the one person that you have to live with for the rest of your life. You. (laughs) Right? In fact, you have to live with this person for the rest of eternity. So I'd like to invite you to think uh, with me about you. If I read the Bible right, it seems to me that the big evaluation of life is not going to be about how much we know. The big evaluation of our lives is not going to be about how much we know. After all, Satan knows quite a bit, doesn't do him much good, right? Nor is the big evaluation in our life going to be about how right we are about everything. Because we Christians think we're right about everything, right? And... uh, Even though righteousness is extremely important, the righteousness that the Bible talks about in our life is a righteousness that's based on faith and based on grace and not on being right against the law, right? And uh, knowledge is extremely important, right? We need to know the truth. But neither of those is ultimately the measure of success in life. Ultimately, I want to suggest to you that the biggest measure of success in life will be about how Christ-like we became, how Christ-like we are for all of eternity, and uh, how much our lives actually mimic the life of God. Because the truth be known, God made us to be like himself. He made us in his likeness. He made us to be like him. And uh, the biggest measure in life, it seems to me, is how much we mimic or become like him. The ultimate measure of God is his love, right? I mean, the Bible comes right out and says, God is love. And so I want to suggest to you that the ultimate measure of our life is how much our love mimics the love of God. In uh, 1 John chapter 4, in a number of different ways, uh, God comes right out and says in the Bible, God is love. It just comes right out, you know. And um, right before Jesus left to go back to heaven, you might remember, uh, Jesus, after he was here and did his ministry for three years, uh, he said, I got one new commandment for you. We had all the old commandments. We got all ten. We got all the you know, laws and rules and all of that. But I have one new law before I leave. Okay? In John chapter 13, he says, a new commandment I give you. That you love one another, but not just love one another any old way, but that you love one another as I have loved you. Not just any old kind of love, but that you love the way that you experience my love to you. In other words, you love the way God loves you. In other words, your experience of God's love in your life will dictate the way that you then love other people. And uh, then he went on to say, uh, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So he says it twice, the same thing. But then he says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have this kind of love for each other. Like the best evangelistic tool that we have to spread the kingdom of God in the world is love. The way that we love each other, the world will, if we love each other the way God loves us, the world will take notice of it. And the world will become convinced that there's something to this Jesus Christ. The world will become convinced that that he's telling the truth and that he can actually get involved in our everyday lives and transform uh, the way we live and bring the kind of joy and happiness and love and peace and patience and all the other things that he promises. 
You might remember in Mark chapter 12, um, a scribe, a Jewish scribe, uh, came up to Jesus in Mark chapter 12, and he asked a question that, you know, every once in a while it would be good for us to ask. And uh, the scribe came to Jesus, uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 28, and here's what he said. He said, which commandment is the most important of all? Like, what's the most important thing I can do with my life? What's the most significant thing I can do, right? And uh, Jesus answered him and said, look, the most important thing you can do with your life, right? The most important command, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love. Love the Lord your God. That's what you should do. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you should love your neighbor as yourself. There's one big command that you need to do in order to be successful in life, and it's to love. And it has three uh, um, targets, if you will. Our love is to be towards God, towards our neighbor, whom Jesus expands to include our enemies, right? Luke chapter 6. And we're to love as we love ourselves. Three targets for this love that God has for us that we're then to reflect back to him to others, and to ourselves. And then Jesus says this, there is no other commandment greater than this. You can't find anything to do with your life greater than this, than to love like God loves you, to allow God to love you, and then to experience and express that. There is no other command, there is no major obligation in life greater than this, than to love the way God has Loved you. Love one another just as I love you. And so if you think about Jesus' love for you, you know, it's, it's overwhelming, right? It's ridiculously generous. We've been talking about generosity this year, and, and God's love for you is ridiculously. Psalm 103 that we just read, right? It's ridiculously generous. It's overwhelmingly generous. You can't uh, find the end of God's love. His, his love is... Generous, it's sacrificial, um, and it comes from a choice that he had to make to choose to love us. It comes from a choice that he made. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was like, God, if there's some other way, if you could please let this pass, I don't want to do this. I don't want to become all the dirty sin of the world and experience your wrath for it. If there's some other way, please, right? Uh, But we can only love like Jesus loves if we experience that. And I want to suggest to you that the love that God has for us is not a feeling kind of love, but it's a doing kind of love. It's the opposite of the way the world tends to operate. It's not a feeling so much as a doing kind of love. And it's once we experience this love and we can pass it on, um, I think the conclusion, Paul, you know, in Romans, Romans is a great theological treatise and part of the application part or the conclusion part, Romans chapter 13, uh, Paul puts it like this, um, owe nobody anything, okay, except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. How do you fulfill, the, how do you do everything that God is asking us to do? How do we fulfill that one obligation? The one who loves fulfills the law. Well, how do, you, how, how, do you, how do you mean, Paul? Well, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. You should, you know, all the other commandments are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself because love does no wrong to a neighbor and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. 
At the end of our life, the ultimate evaluation of what we did and how we invested our life and why God gave it to us is not what we know and it's not how right we are, but it's how much like Christ we've become and especially in our ability to love as he has loved us. And so God's love is communicated, it seems to me, uh, by both words and deeds. And our love is communicated to the next person by both our words and our deeds. And so our passage this morning in Ephesians uh, is really a continuation of the passage where it left off last week, as Pastor Dan uh, explained from uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And I'd like to go back to verse 30, because there's an incredible thought in verse 30. Uh, Here's what the Bible tells us, you know, do not grieve the Spirit of God. Now, that really is quite a thought. Because God loves you, he's vulnerable to you. He's made himself vulnerable. And it becomes possible then to grieve him or to hurt him or to move him to tears. Don't grieve the very spirit of God who is your guarantee of your eternal salvation. Do not grieve the spirit of God. I don't like to think about the fact that I can hurt God. By my words and my deeds. I don't like to think about the fact that my life has brought grief to God. When we take his love and we don't pass it on, it grieves him. And uh, I think our sin is painful to God. It breaks his heart. causes him to weep, as it were. To grieve. Don't grieve the spirit of God. Uh, I think when we lie instead of speak the truth, the spirit of God is grieved. I think when we steal instead of share, the spirit of God is grieved, right? I think when we curse instead of bless, the spirit of God, you know, is uh, grieved. And I think this is a huge motivation for living the Christian life, our words and our deeds, uh, if we understand that what we say and do has a profound effect on God, that it's possible to grieve him. And he's, you know, why would you grieve the one who's the guarantee of your salvation? You know, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's the one that's wrapping up our salvation. He's the one that's holding us in place for that great day. Why would you give him grief? And so the Bible goes on to say, you know, that... um, The Spirit of God is a person, and I I think this is a a great motivation for how we live. The Spirit of God can be grieved, he can be quenched, he can be resisted, he can be insulted, he can be blasphemed, and he's God's seal in our life. He's our comforter, he's our teacher, he's our intercessor, our go-between between us and God when we pray. Why would you want to grieve him? And so Paul says, instead of grieving God, get rid of these diseases that are in your life. The next verse. Verse 31 says, you know, don't grieve the spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger. All. Yeah, a little word all. All bitterness, all wrath, and all anger. Right? And then he goes on. uh, And he says... um, And clamor and slander and malice be put away from you. I want to suggest to you that bitterness and wrath and anger are internal things. When we're angry, when we're bitter, when we're mad, okay, when we have wrath, it comes out as clamor, slander, and malice. 
Clamor is just an outburst of strife, right? It's a clamor is an outburst of just, you know, how I feel. And, you know, a lot of uh, movies are based on clamor, right? Um, Clamor and slander, we all know what that is. Gossiping about somebody, trying to run their character down or whatever. And malice is the planning of, or the plotting of evil. How am I going to destroy this person? Or how am I going to get even with this person? And so on. And so you have these internal things, bitterness and wrath and anger that kind of take up attitudes. And by the way, a lot of times those attitudes, if, if you try to get rid of them, you find out they go all the way back to things that happened to us as kids. You know, and, and it's what the Bible calls a root of bitterness begins to, you know, that when it's not properly dealt with, this root of bitterness becomes, and it becomes like an infection and it just spreads. And all of a sudden you're yelling at somebody else for something that, is really not the issue because it, it's, a, it's a root that's gotten a hold of your whole personality and infected your soul, and it comes out as clamor, and next thing you know, and strife and, and malice, and you're planning evil and so forth, and God says, listen, if you're not going to grieve the Holy Spirit, you've got to get rid of that stuff. You've got to get rid of that stuff, right? These are the, the, the internal and the external uh, of these things. Get rid of all of that stuff, and instead... Allow God to restore you like this. The next verse, verse 32, instead be kind to one another, tender-hearted and forgiving. Because that's the way God has loved you. That's what the 103rd Psalm is all about. How God as a compassionate father has loved us. How does God love us? He's kind. Jesus said in uh, Luke chapter 6 that he's um, kind even to the evil and the ungrateful. God is kind. In fact, it's the kindness of God that drives us towards repentance, that drives us towards salvation, the the kindness of God. He's tender-hearted. He's patient. If God were to ever give us everything that we deserve, the the whole world would just be vaporized in a half a second, right? But God is tender-hearted. He's compassionate. He's this compassionate father, and he's forgiving, forgiving. Uh, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is exactly what we've received from God. We are not loved by God because we deserve it. It's really annoying when you meet a Christian who thinks that they're better than everybody else and they deserve God's love. Nobody is loved by God because they deserve it. We are loved by God because God is kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. That's why we're loved by God, not because we deserve it. God has chosen to treat us as we need, not as we deserve. Some people, you know, call this verse the sweetest verse in the Bible. To think of God, our Father, as one who is kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving, especially as it's expressed in Christ. And so the next two verses, which are our text for this morning, I want to suggest are a continuation of that thought. You know, the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible came long after the letters were written, so they're not inspired. I think this chapter division's in the wrong place. I think, you know, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 really should be uh, chapter 4, verse 33. should be like the next verse in this thought, and that uh, when it says, therefore, you know, in chapter 5, verse 1, the very first word is therefore. The therefore refers back to um, don't grieve the Spirit of God who's got your salvation wrapped up for you, sealed and guaranteed. And so, therefore, instead of um, grieving the Spirit of God, here's the other option. Be an imitator of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as loved children, as the children of this compassionate Father, imitate him. 
be so enthralled with him, so excited about him, so respectful of him, so desirous of honoring him that you want to be like him. Every good parent sets a model for a kid and says, look, just be like me. Follow me. Right? A good parent doesn't say, you know, do what I say, don't do what I do. A good parent shows the person how to live and uh, is hoping that that child will uh, follow them, will imitate him. The word for imitator, imitate, in um, the Greek language is uh, mimites, mimites. And it's the exact word that we get our word mimic from, right? Some of you might even remember, if you're old, we used to have what's called a, a mimeograph machine. You know what it did? It made copies. Now we just call it a copier, right? But basically what you stuck in it is what came out of it. It made a copy. And so what the scripture is saying here is that when the spirit of God gets in your life and you allow God to get into your life, the outcome of your life will be a copy, an imitation of God. Don't grieve the spirit of God. Don't fight the spirit of God. Don't resist the spirit. Don't blaspheme the spirit. Don't argue with the spirit of God. Allow yourself to become an imitation by the spirit's help of the God that you've come here today to worship. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Um, We're to copy God. The Christian life is about reproducing God's life as seen in Jesus, which means we get to adopt the personality of Jesus into our life. The more we study the word, the more we understand uh, the way Jesus was, the more we become impressed, the more the spirit enables us. And as we study the word and as we look at Jesus, I think we, we often you know, come to the same conclusion that Isaiah came to. In Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah said, you know what? Your thoughts, oh God, are much higher than my thoughts. Your way of thinking is so different than the world's way of thinking by which I've been infected. And, and by the way, not only your thoughts, but your ways, your ways of doing things, your ways of seeing things, your ways of handling people, your ways of responding to situations, your ways are so much higher than my ways. And if you study this, you begin to understand just exactly what Isaiah meant, that God's ways are so different. God's thoughts are higher and his ways are higher. And so when he asks us to imitate him, a lot of us just skip right over that. We say, ah, I could never do that. And we just skip it. What's next? No, slow down here. God says, I want you to imitate me as my loved children, as my beloved um, children. I would say there's nothing, absolutely nothing better in life than to know and understand and experience the love of God in our lives. There's nothing higher. There's nothing more satisfying than knowing. There's nothing that affects every area of our life more than knowing for sure and experiencing the love that God has for us. When you know that you are loved by the creator by the, of the universe, the, the God who knows everything and the God who's all-powerful and he's committed to you in love... There's nothing better than that. There's nothing you can experience in life that's better than being loved by God in Christ and becoming one of his children. You remember uh, in John, John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, uh, to all who receive Jesus Christ and believe in his name, he gives the right to become the children of God. To be a child of God, you know, to be a child of God is huge. And to be loved by this compassionate father changes everything about our lives. Uh, Paul put it in Galatians chapter 4, similar, chapter 4 and verse 4. 
Uh, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of the living God. And because you're sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Daddy, Father. God gave us his spirit to assure us of this relationship and cement that relationship and facilitate that relationship so you're no longer a slave but a son. And if you're a son, you're an heir of God. I am dying rich. I'm an heir of God. Everything that's his is mine. If you're a son or a daughter, you are incredibly rich because of the generosity of our Father, and that's what we are. And so I want to suggest to you, you know, that when somebody asks you or when you have a quiet moment, you ask yourself, right? This used to be all the rage in college-age kids years ago. Who am I? You ever ask yourself that question? Who really am I? Who am I? And when you can say and mean and believe at the core of your being, I am a son or a daughter of the living God, that's who I am. It changes everything after that. If you're still stuck at, well, you know, I'm a mom or I'm a dad or I'm a machinist or a banker or, you know, a landscaper or a mechanic or, and that's my whole identity. If you don't understand that you're a son or a daughter of the living God, you don't understand what God has done for you. To be loved by God and to be adopted into his family and to be one of these children so that when he says, you know, uh, instead of grieving the spirit who's in you, be an imitator of God as a beloved child. Understand who you are. You're not just anybody. You're a son or a daughter of the living God. And it changes your whole identity. And when you understand that and when you believe it, it changes your whole walk. He says, you know, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, verse 2, and walk in love. Walk in love. Now, walk is a synonym for live, right? The Bible uses the word walk as a synonym for how you live, what you say and what you do primarily. And so walk in love. What's the greatest thing as children of this God that we can do is walk in love as Christ loved us. Now, you know, uh, relationships are dependent upon love. Relationships improve with love. Uh, Relationships uh, measure their quality in love. And so God says, be an imitator of me and walk in love. And I want to suggest that love happens when people are valued for who they are And the expectation and the obligations come off of the person that you're loving and on to you to be more loving. Love happens when we take the expectations off the other person and put them on ourselves to be more like God in this situation, whatever it is. Right? That's when love happens. And that's how God has chosen to love us. His love is not dependent on us. He would never love us if if we had to earn it. His love is dependent on him being kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving, which he gives to us and expects us to, in turn, give to the next person. And so I think when God first created us, there were a lot of expectations. I, you ever think of God like a, a parent of a newborn baby? You know, especially uh, first-time parents. You know, the first time around, they have this little baby, and they got these great expectations. 
they have all these ideas of how this baby's going to grow up and what they're going to do and, and how this baby's going to turn out and so on and so forth. And, they, and, and I think God, when he first created people in his own likeness, in his own image, there were all kinds of expectations about how great this was going to be, like any new parent. And then the fall came in Genesis chapter 3, and people rebelled against their parent. Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled, and, and uh, it hurt God, right? And so uh, three chapters later, listen to this. This is God talking in Genesis chapter 6. Just three chapters after this rebellion happened, here's what God says, some of the saddest verses in the entire Bible, right? The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Oh, my goodness. Here's God, all these expectations, all this energy, eternal, goes into creating these people to be like him. He's got great excitement, looking to the future, how this is going to be. Look at the next verse, verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. The Lord was sorry he made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. It broke his heart. It grieved him. All of his expectations were dead. So, verse 8, but there was a guy named Noah. (laughs) Noah shows up, who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. God had to make a choice. And God decided he was going to love Noah, and he was going to save Noah, right? Right? God decided he was going to save Noah. And so you know the story here of uh, Noah and the ark and, and, and so on. God chose to save him. Love is a choice. And to love is to choose to put others first before yourself. And that's what God does. Um, and that's why the character of a Christian is marked, if you will, by the very love that God loves us with. Uh, let me just uh, read one verse here. There's a number of verses in 1 John chapter 3, but... Uh, Verse 14 says this, we know that we have passed out of death and into life. A Christian is a person who can know for sure that they've passed out of death, like like eternal death, and into life because we love the brothers. If there hasn't been a change in your life and attitude and love toward other people and toward especially other Christian people, since you've become a Christian, you have reason to question whether or not you've ever truly trusted Christ. Because look at the next part of this verse. It says, um, you know, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brother. Whoever does not love still abides in death. You cannot be a Christian and not love and have this change going on. Now, not perfectly and not completely, but you ought to be able to notice that since I've become a Christian, my whole attitude toward other people has changed. And that the very spirit of God has gotten in me. And I'm beginning to see people the way God sees. And I'm beginning to to think that, you know, um, these people are doing the best they can. And I'm going to have compassion on them. They're not right. I'm not agreeing with them. But they're lost. And my goodness, we in our country today, we have a gazillion opportunities. Right? To extend the love of God even to our enemies. And to make it not so much about us being right, which we are, but about being loving, which God is. 
and which God is asking us to be. And so a couple of things about this love that comes from God. You know, the, the word for God's love is agape, right? There's a number of different words in the Bible about love, and there's different levels of love and all of that. But when we talk about God's love for us, this evidence that uh, we've come to life and, and left death, uh, the love that is spoken about is agape. And I want to say two things about uh, the way that God loves us. First of all, God's love loves first and lets feelings catch up later, right? God's love He commits first. He loves. His love exists first, and then the emotions catch up. Agape love starts with a commitment to love. It's the opposite of the way the world loves. The world loves by, you know, somewhere along the line, I make an acquaintance. And uh, I make this acquaintance. I figure out, is there something in it for me? Do I like this person? Do I like being around this person? Can this person do anything for my agenda? You know, that's the way. And then the world says, you know, if I like this person, they can help me out. You know what? my acquaintance might move to the level of a friendship. I'm going to try to establish a friendship with this person because I like them and they, they make me feel good and I, they can do this or that for me. And, and so we go to friendship. And then if the friendship works out for a while, then maybe we say, you know what? I love you enough to make a commitment to you about the future. God does the opposite. God makes the commitment first. He, he loves first. And he says, I'm going to love, period. And I'm going to wait for my feelings to catch up. Uh, as time goes by. And it's just the opposite of the way the world works. Uh, The other thing about agape love, about God's love, is that God's love cannot be compensated. You cannot pay God back for his love. If you're spending your life trying to be good enough to earn God's love, you're wasting your life. You will never be able to get even and pay God back for his love. Now, I think this translates into uh, a principle that a lot of people just don't understand. Whenever you choose to love, you always give more than you get. Always. My wife has chosen to love me. She always has to give more than she gets. It's the truth. Don't you feel that way? I have to give more than I get if I'm going to continue to love. That's the kind of love that God has. That's agape love. Agape love doesn't keep score. It doesn't try to get even. It doesn't try to say, well, you know, when you do this, I'll do that. And so, no, agape love, God's love, the love that God calls us to imitate as his kids, is the kind of love that cannot be compensated, you know? And I think it's so important for us to understand because there's so many people sitting around, instead of fulfilling what God is asking us to do and imitating him, they're waiting for the other person to measure up. If God did that to you and me, game over. It's called hell, right? Literally, that's what it's called. And so God's love, when we love other people, translates down into the fact that, you know, it's going to cost us more than we're going to get. Just get that into your head. That's what happened to God. Nobody can repay God for the love that he's given to us. And so that's why, you know, in our text here in verse 2, it says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Live your life in love. Our walk is to be different than uh, non-Christians' walk. You remember? And um, it's all over here in in Ephesians. Um, You know, where is it? Uh, Here, verse 17 uh, of chapter 4. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk like the Gentiles do in the futility of their own minds. Forget about what you think. Figure out what God thinks. Forget about what you want to do. Figure out what God wants you to do. 
right? Don't walk in the futility of your own mind. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Don't trust, don't trust in your own thoughts. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. You know, and there's all kinds of uh, advice here about our walk and how it's to be different, you know, uh, from the world that we live. But how does it look? Well, walk in love, look, verse 2, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant sacrifice, fragrant offering, and sacrifice to God. Give yourself up, be an offering, and make a sacrifice. That's what it takes to love. That's what it takes to love. And that's the kind of love that God has for you. And so when God comes to us, uh, God says things like this. I'm committed to you. Um, I will never knowingly hurt you even though you hurt me. You ever say that to somebody? I will never knowingly hurt you even though you hurt me. Right? We all get hurt by each other, right? Or how about this? I think God says to us, I'll help you even if you won't help me. When you're down, I'll help lift you up even if you put me down. That's what love does. That's what love is, right? That's, that's the way God thinks. No matter what happens in the future, no matter what I find out about you, I will love you. And that's what love does. And that's what God does to us. And to imitate God's love to others is to treat others as they need, not as they deserve. And so to love God is to keep his commandments, and his biggest commandment is to love. To love God, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, Three times in John chapter 14, Jesus says, if you love me, don't come to church and say you love me and sing songs to me. If you really love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll do what I say. You'll love with a doing instead of a feeling kind of love, right? And I want to suggest to you that at the heart of this kind of love is always forgiveness. Forgiveness. You can't love without forgiveness. God can't love us without forgiveness, and you can't love the next person without forgiveness because everybody hurts everybody else. Because we're broken, right? Because we're fallen, because we're the uh, products of Adam and Eve. Forgiveness, in uh, one of the definitions that I like to use about forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is never bringing up again a resolved conflict. People hurt each other, right? If you resolve that hurt and that conflict and you never bring it up again, eventually you just forget about it. I think that's what God says. I'm going to take your sin and I'm going to remove it as far as the east is from the west. I'm going to bury it in the depths of the sea. If you confess, I'll forgive and we'll never talk about this again. I'm not scared of dying and going to heaven and having God rehearse all my sins. He's promised not to do that. They're gone, right? Forgiveness is never bringing up again a resolved conflict. You have to resolve it. And God has given us a way to resolve it. Another definition of forgiveness is releasing people from your judgment and turning them over to God. Releasing people from our judgment is what forgiveness really is. Uh, People hurt each other. People say things and do things and, and they leave scars, right? They wound us. Parents do it. Kids do it. Bosses do it, spouses do it, neighbors do it, church people do it, pastors do it, other pastors. (laughs) We all hurt each other, right? Not because we want to, but because we're all broken ourselves, okay? And when these hurts go unresolved, right, they become like infections. And then they infect us and they spread to other parts of our life. And uh, they create what the Bible calls bitterness, wrath, and anger. Somebody offends you, hurts you, you know? 
And uh, you get angry, right? And if you don't resolve it, it'll turn into bitterness, this root of bitterness, you know. And here's what I know. No matter how much effort you put into life to kind of muster yourself together and move forward in spite of what happened to you, you won't be able to do it. No matter how much determination you have to say, you know what, I'm just not going to let this bother me, this hurt that came to me, I'm just not going to let it bother me, I can tell you the only way that you can possibly resolve those hurts and conflicts, and especially that come from the past, is by forgiveness. By forgiveness. You know, for a long time, I was confused about forgiveness. I I didn't like forgiveness because I thought forgiveness was all about giving a pass to the bad guy. I was the good guy, right? And you're the bad guy. And I thought forgiveness was giving a pass to the bad guy. An easy pass, if you will, right? I didn't like it. Didn't think it was right. Until I learned from Scripture the truth uh, that forgiveness is actually designed for us. Forgiveness is designed to keep us from becoming angry and bitter. If you've got anger issues, I guarantee you haven't understood forgiveness. I guarantee it, right? The, the person who benefits the most from forgiveness is not the other guy, it's me. God designed forgiveness for us, and that's why God says after he teaches us how to pray, he says, listen, if you don't forgive the other guy, I'm not going to forgive you. Your life's going down. I mean, we're all toast if God doesn't forgive us, right? We all agree with that. And God says, you know, the the, the way that I know that you've experienced my forgiveness is your ability to forgive the next person. Uh, What what happens is, you know, when I'm hurt, when somebody takes something from me, um, they become indebted to me. That's why I say, you owe me an apology, right? You've offended me. You've taken something from me. You've... You've done something wrong to me, and I'm hurt by it, and so forth, and I'm going to get even, you know, we say. Uh, I want the other person to replace what was taken from me. Now, here's the problem. That never happens. When there's a breakdown in a relationship, there is something that goes out of that relationship that can never be put back. And if you're spending your life trying to get the other person to put it back and make it right again, it will never happen. It can't. I had a huge conversation this past, just this past week with somebody who called me to apologize to me. I didn't even know what he had done, but he felt guilty about it, and so he called to apologize. And, and uh, you know, uh, over the phone, he was telling me what happened, and, and money was involved, and, and trust was involved, and he betrayed my trust and so forth. And, and uh, I was hurt by the, by the whole thing. And, and uh, when he hung up, um, I found that, you know what? I'm still mad at this guy. I mean, he called to apologize, but his apology was not enough to offset my anger. I'll be honest with you. He apologized. He did the best he could and all of that, and he meant it. I think he was sincere and all of that. But you know what? Something's gone out of this relationship now. You see? And I realized that if I don't forgive him, that'll never go away. Every time I see him, I'm just going to have this. The first thing that's going to come to my mind is this incident. And I'm not going to trust him. And I'm not going to be able to reconcile. I'm not going to be able to rebuild the relationship. Unless I forgive. See, the apology is not enough to offset the offense. And you can apologize to God all you want. But unless God forgives you from his heart, right, it doesn't go anyplace. It's not enough. 
And that's the problem when relationships break down, you know. People are waiting to try and reconcile by making it even again. Wow, I got this debt now. And that's why, you know what God says, instead of doing all of that, talk to me about it, God says. You remember? God says, look, I'm going to teach you how to pray. And when you pray, you pray like this. You ask me to forgive you for your trespasses and your debts the way you are indebted to me as you forgive people who trespass against you and create debt against you. When you talk to me about this, you talk to me like this. You ask me to forgive you the same way you're willing to forgive because I've already gone first and forgiven you. And when you talk to me about this and when you draw the truth down into this and so forth, because uh, the problem is you can't ever get even. Uh, Only my forgiveness can give peace. You can't pay back a broken relationship. You can't pay back lost time. You know, these kids who are abused in their early years and carry this all through their life, they can never get it right until they're willing to forgive. There is no answer. How could you ever compensate for abusing a child? You can't. I don't care what you do. I don't care how much money you give. I don't care what you do to absolve your conscience. You can never turn that around. Unless you're willing to forgive, it's always there, and it becomes a root of bitterness that affects every other relationship in your life. You can't ever restore a person's reputation. People gossip about you, say wrong things, lie about you, destroy your reputation. You can't. They can come back and apologize, but you can't ever fix that. No apology is going to, you know outweigh that to make it right again. Something's lost. And that's the reality of our relationship with God, and that's the reality of our relationship with one another. And when when we don't forgive, it creates this root of bitterness, this anger that begins to develop and begins to spread. And before you know it, you know, something that happened way in the past is affecting the present. We can't get along with people. We're, you know, uh, angry at everybody, and we can't keep a job and all the rest of it, you know. And God says, hey, talk to me. But when you talk to me, talk to me like this. Ask me to forgive you the same way you forgive the next person, your trespasses and your debts that you owe me. Well, one more uh, just a passage of Scripture, and I promise to quit. But in Matthew chapter 18, you know what? Uh, you know, Peter, right? We got to end with Peter. Peter, we all love Peter. Uh, Jesus was talking about this forgiveness stuff, and, and Peter comes up to the Lord. you remember this? And uh, Peter says, Lord, you know, how often... Do I have to forgive the guy who sins against me? (laughs) Peter wants to know, like, all right, what's the limit? It sounds good, you know, forgiveness. But when can I be done? I mean, when uh, when have I crossed the line, passed the limit? When do I get to stop forgiving this person and beat him up and kill him? (laughs) Right? That's what Peter wants to know. And so, and Peter, you know, he wants to be generous. He's in front of the Lord. And so Peter says, you know, like as many as seven times. And he's thinking the Lord's going to, you know, pat him on the back and say, wow, that's pretty good, Pete, you know. But Jesus says to him, no, I don't say seven times. I say 70 times seven, 490 times, if you're a legalistic type person. But really what Jesus is saying, an infinite number. How many people think that God has to forgive them more than 490 times over the course of their lifetime? Right? In other words, Jesus is saying it's an infinite number, Okay. And then Jesus does what he always does. He tells a story. And this is just the best story, right? He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like this. what it's like to be a Christian and live with God. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Here's how it is, all right? You can compare it to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. God wants to make things right with us, right? And uh, that's what Christianity is all about. Here's a way to make things right. 
Uh, when he began to settle accounts, one person was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, which is a huge amount of money. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and everything that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, please have patience with me. I will pay everything back in the future. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and what? Forgave him his debt. This is a picture of you and I as Christians and our relationship with God. The master has forgiven us our indebtedness to him. He made us to be like him. We've all fallen short of that. We've created a debt with him. He's forgiven the debt. That's what it means to be a Christian. So now this Christian gets out and uh, gets out from the presence of the king, verse 28. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, which is a small amount of money, and he grabbed him by the throat and he began to choke him. And he said, uh, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, please have patience with me, I'll pay you in the future. But this guy, who was forgiven everything, refused. Refused what? Refused to forgive. And he went and he put him in prison until he should pay all the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and they reported it to the master uh, who, uh, all that had happened, and the master summoned that servant back into his presence. And he said, you wicked servant, right? I forgave you all that debt because you asked me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master, who is God, delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not Forgive your brother where? From your heart. You can't mimic, you, you can't, you know, pretend and just surface forgive. This is from the heart. This is a, a posture, a posture of forgiveness that we learn from being uh, with God. A forgiving heart is a loving heart. And Jesus said, forgive and you'll be forgiven. Forgiveness means that we're willing to let go of the hurt and the pain that we feel and give it over to God and allow God to deal with it. And I would suggest to you that there is never a situation in our lives, never a situation in our lives where unforgiveness can be justified in the face of God. There's never a situation where unforgiveness can be justified in the face of God. We have to be willing to forgive if we're believers and to release others from our judgment and to trust God to bring uh, things to be right again. Love is a choice. Reconciliation is a choice. Forgiveness is a choice. It's a choice made possible by what God has done for us in Christ and therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it just seems like these are such clarifying verses. It just seems like it's so easy for us to understand and yet so hard for us to do. We know, Father, that our whole eternity and our whole relationship with you is based on your love for us and your love expressed in forgiveness, and not just once, but as a posture toward us for the duration of our life. And then you call us to imitate you, and Lord, we do. We just live in a world where uh, 
it's so easy to think that the, the, that being right is what it's all about. And it's so easy, Father, to, there's so much wrong in our world that it's so easy for us to just sit back and, and detach ourselves from the world and condemn it. But that's not what you did. You came into the world. And you came here to love and to forgive and to hold out an, an opportunity for people to be reconciled. But it meant, Father, that you had to become an offering. You had to give yourself up. You had to sacrifice. And uh, I think the same thing is true for us, that for us to extend that love into the world and that forgiveness into the world, we have to give something up in ourselves, Father. And we have to be willing to sacrifice. And we have to be willing to make our lives an offering to you. And we have to do it for you, not really even for the other person, but for you so that your kingdom and your glory can expand so that people can see the light in the middle of the darkness in us. And uh, we thank you for this privilege, Father, to imitate you. We thank you for the privilege of being your sons and daughters and all that that implies. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that your spirit could have freedom. Keep us from grieving your spirit. Keep us, Father, from becoming angry and bitter and full of wrath and mad. But instead, Father, that we too could be kind and be tender-hearted toward people who are lost and don't know any better. And that we could be forgiving as we hold forth the truth. Help us to speak the truth, but to do it in love. For Jesus' sake, amen.